So uh, the three of us, will, we have, each have a short PowerPoint presentation, uh, and then we'll go to questions. So uh, please hold your questions till the end of the presentation. And uh, be but before we start, I'd like to uh, ask, uh, 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 poll the audience and find out uh, which of you are uh, design professionals. So we have some design professionals, and what about contractors? Some contractors and uh, property owners and renters. So it's a fairly even uh, split. We have representatives of all three groups. All right, we'll continue on. So uh, my very short uh, presentation is going to be uh, uh, why green buildings and uh, show that there are some uh, federal, state, and city programs that uh, address uh, the needs and the requirements for green buildings. And then uh, I'm hopeful that Rich uh, can uh, detail some steps that residents and owners can take to reduce energy consumption in their building. And at the end, uh, with time, I'll describe our expedited solar PV uh, permit process. And uh, this is a very short Y green, uh, carbon dioxide increasing in the atmosphere and causing, uh, causing global warming and other environmental effects. Uh, and in my mind, the, the, the most scary of which is an increase in sea level and uh, which could uh, severely impact our infrastructure it happens too fast in particular. And uh, we've got uh, some nice greenhouse gas production here. And a uh, scary picture of the Larsen ice sheet in the Antarctic that, that melted uh, a number of years ago. A nice uh, convection uh, current in the atmosphere. And the uh, scariest of all, uh, what might happen if sea level rises about three feet to three meters? which uh, I heard one alarming report that could happen as soon as 30 years, and I certainly hope not. But uh, we can make a difference, and what we need to do is reduce our CO2 production to, to give, uh, at least on the building front, uh, the opportunity for uh, the world to uh, respond with uh, infrastructure change at a sustainable and manageable pace, and of course uh, try to reduce our impact on the environment. So to that end, of course, the Department of Energy, U.S. Department of Energy has a lot of, uh, uh, I went to their website and they have programs, the Energy Star, uh, Energy Efficiency uh, Product uh, Certification, and you can go to their website and get tips and, uh, and calculators. And California has a, a, a number of initiatives, which uh, the other moderators will be able to uh, detail more, but one of them, uh, which I'm involved with is the uh, CPUC, California Public Utilities Commission, has a 10-year, $2.9 billion program to increase uh, solar PV capacity to 3,000 megawatts by 2017. And, of course, San Francisco, the city of San Francisco, has a, a series of uh, initiatives, and we're continuing to work on it. And they started out in 1997 with a sustainability plan, and uh, 2002, a climate action plan. In 2004, uh, the city uh, made a decision to build all uh, municipal buildings, uh, lead silver, which uh, I think we'll detail about what that means a little bit later. We set some zero waste goals, and uh, which now include, I think, the requirements for recycling for uh, construction debris. 
And in 2005, there was a major worldwide meeting, I believe, of uh, urban mayors and uh, environmental accords were signed. And uh, I think work is continuing on that. And as far as the Department of Building Inspection goes, although our primary mission, primary mission is building safety, safety of persons and property when it comes to built structures, we do have a expedited uh, solar PV permit processing process and uh, priority processing for green buildings. And uh, for those of you that need more information about that, uh, for green buildings, uh, Lawrence Cornfield, Chief Building Inspector Lawrence Cornfield is a tremendous resource. He can be reached at 558-6244. And I can be reached at 558-6654 if you have any detailed questions about solar uh, insta uh, PV installations. And by PV, I mean photovoltaic. That's uh, generation of electricity versus um, solar water heating, which is a uh, plumbing uh, issue. In any case, uh, the department is charged to enforce the California Energy Code, which in short uh, re uh, requires a new construction and, and re uh, remodel to be much more highly energy efficient than it has been in the past. And we do that through mechanical plan review and our field inspection process. In short, the Energy Code uh, places, uh, pretty much prohibits electric resistance space heating and electric resistance water heating except under a very uh, strict set of conditions. Be and the rationale is they're much less energy efficient than gas burning appliances and we can details later. And of course, if you should replace or put in a new furnace heat pump or air conditioner, they have to be very en energy efficient. And those, re those are actually national requirements and most manufacturers are uh, complying with those requirements. And most of what's out in the marketplace uh, does comply. You're, if you put in uh, replace windows, they need to be double glazed, energy efficient. And lighting, and particularly in residences, uh, needs to be uh, efficient. And uh, we are gradually phasing out incandescent lights. And uh, all, uh, much to the uh, dismay of uh, people, a lot of uh, people don't like to have uh, fluorescent lights in their kitchens and in in their houses, but hopefully through education and, and an improvement in these products, uh, that resistance will go away. There are uh, great products out there that do not hum and have good color rendering index. And that's the end of my slow and I'd like to t uh, show and I'd like to turn it over to Rich. Sorry, we have some technical difficulties.
got it. I got it. Hi everyone, um, my name is Rich Chen. I'm the Residential Green Building Coordinator with the Department of the Environment for the City and County of San Francisco. Um, I'm gonna pick up a little bit on where Dave left off with um, maybe taking a step back a little bit, kind of giving a bigger picture as to green building as opposed to just energy efficiency. Um, and then talk a little bit more about some of the things the city's doing focusing around green building. So why are we interested in all of this? Uh, climate change is a big issue for everyone, energy efficiency, um, saving resources such as this beautiful forest um, from Northern California. And according to the National Association of Home Builders, the construction of a 2,000 square foot house takes up about an acre and a half of uh, forest. So the impacts of the building industry on the environment and on human health these are sort of the whole picture of, of all the impacts that are going into a building and ways that we can reduce our uh, environmental footprint. Um, in the U.S., construction activities account for 30% of all municipal solid waste. And kind of on the health side, because green building does consider the health aspects of buildings on occupants, since 1976, um, asthma has increased uh, twofold, and now 20 million people are afflicted with asthma, including 6.3 million children, and 40% of children born today will develop some sort of respiratory disease. Is it directly linked to what we're putting into our buildings? We're not exactly sure, but there is growing evidence that a lot of the things that we're putting into our buildings and the way we're ventilating them and the way we're trying to keep them dry and prevent mold and reduce the use of toxic chemicals and things that off-gas in the environment that are allergens and do affect the occupants of buildings may have a significant role to play in this uh, phenomenon. Um, turning to the energy side, um, this is from the uh, U.S. Department of Energy looking at the three major sectors of industry, buildings, and transportation and kind of looking at 39% um, of the energy that's produced in this country goes to operate our buildings. 21% um, is for residential and about 18% is for commercial. Um, this is another parsing out of that, um, that pie. And if you take all the embodied energy of sourcing materials, transporting materials to the job site, installing the materials, you can see that it's actually adding up to be quite a bit more than the 38%. We can take the industrial energy and the transportation energy out and add it to the building sector. And we're looking at upwards of 48% or so of carbon dioxide emissions. And you can see that the industrial sector has sort of flattened off over time, over the last 40 years or so. And transportation is starting to ratchet down a little bit, but the building industry just keeps going up in terms of our impact on um, the climate and through carbon dioxide production. Um, real quick, the 2030 challenge is uh, in response to some of these uh, recent developments and, and knowledge about how the building industry is impacting the environment. Um, Ed Masri is spearheading this effort. He's an uh, old school 
passive solar architect out in uh, New Mexico who's issued the 2030 challenge that calls for uh, massive reductions in carbon dioxide and fossil fuel use from energy uh, to, to support buildings through design and construction of more energy efficient buildings. Um, these numbers and these targets are sort of based on pretty clear evidence that if we don't sort of turn around the way that we're doing things now, we might reach a tipping point um, in terms of how, um, how possible it is to reverse some of the things that we've been in, um, putting into the atmosphere. So green buildings, again, looks at um, sort of the triple bottom line of social benefits, enhanced occupant comfort and health and well-being, uh, the environmental benefits, obviously protecting the environment and preserving resources, and the economic benefits of green building, which um, reduce operating use over time. If you're using less energy and you're using less water, you're, you're saving that money over the time of operating the building. Um, there are other um, economic benefits as well, including competitive first costs. People talk, say that green building costs more. It doesn't necessarily have to. A lot of the technologies that need to be implemented are already out there. It's just a matter of knowing where to get them. Um, as the market transforms, a lot of that price differential is going to go away. And a lot of it is just knowing how to do the very fundamental things in putting a building together and doing it very well as opposed to using high cost, high capital technologies that are sexy and cool, but may not necessarily be the most cost effective thing. Um, lower operating costs, reducing energy use and producing energy on site, reduced water use and durability is a big part of green building. And if you install durable materials that require less maintenance over time, you are able to save in that sense as well. Again, going back to the human factors of green buildings, um, talking about healthier buildings, we can't guarantee that if you build a green building, you're going to be, you know, full of energy running around and glowing with this new healthy um, attitude. But there are a lot of fundamental practices that you can think about when you're designing and constructing a building that can help you ensure that you may be addressing certain things in the right way. Ventilation, moisture control, materials and finishes, again, are they off-gassing? How are they installed? What happens when you're done with that material? Are you just going to incinerate it, send it to a landfill or get it, have it incinerated somewhere? Um, improved comfort is a big part. Um, if you're not exposed to glare and overheating um, or you're not blowing a lot of air around through a forced air system when you might have other ways to condition your home, that's a comfortable space to be in. Um, there have been studies that show that worker productivity and absenteeism are positively affected in the commercial sector from being in green buildings. There have been um, tests showing that in schools, daylit schools produce children that actually do better on test scores and then there's just the peace of mind that comes with all of that. According to the EPA, we spend uh, up to 90% of our time indoors. So the Department of Environment Green Building Program, we are focused on municipal city government. Com the commercial sector has a program and the residential sector has a program. And I'm sort of focused on the residential sector right now. And what we do is provide policy, direction, um, and implementation. We try to develop more incentives to promote green building in the private sector. 
uh, we provide technical support, and we do outreach such as events like this. On the municipal sector, uh, this is the new California Academy of Sciences, which is one of our um, uh, showcase green building projects being going up um, in Golden Gate Park across the way from the DeYoung Museum. It's got a two and a half acre living roof on it. It is on track to be LEED Platinum, which I'll talk about in a second, and Dan is probably going to talk a little bit more about LEED. But um, it's just really a model of an integrated design process where all the design members got together at the very beginning of the process. The mechanical engineer talked to the architect, talked to the contractor, and figured out what the high environmental goals were at the very beginning and, and worked very closely together through the entire design and construction process to ensure that these goals were be on track to being met all the way through the process. Uh, LEAD is, uh, stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. It's a national third-party rating system to evaluate how green a building actually is based on best practices with a lot of industry input. And it's um, really ch been very successful in changing the um, building marketplace towards higher environmental performance. And we are referencing the LEED standard in the LEED uh, gold priority permit processing that Dave uh, mentioned earlier. Um, basically, the Department of Building Inspection, the Planning Department, and the Department of the Environment got together to create a process whereby we could incentivize pri private sector projects to go to a very high level of green, which is the LEED Gold Standard, and thereby um, reviewing those projects before all the other non-green projects, providing up to you know a six to eight to nine or ten month pre-development. Um, incentive to developers, and currently there are 10 projects that have successfully gone through this priority permitting project uh, process with many more um, banging on the door trying to get in, and it's been very successful in um, spurring a lot of new green, uh, green building development in San Francisco. This is the Natural Resources Defense Council. It's an um, office uh, tenant improvement project that met the LEED commercial interiors gold standard. Um, it was uh, in a historic building. They used a lot of natural daylight, a lot of recycled materials, um, paid a lot of attention to indoor environmental quality and daylighting and natural and artificial lighting and how to balance those things to, to create a very energy efficient, comfortable, and um, healthy space to be in. On the residential side, uh, the Folsom Door Apartments is uh, 98 units of uh, supportive housing for people who are homeless. It also went through the LEED program and achieved a LEED Silver certification, one of the first affordable housing projects in the state of California to get uh, a LEED certification showing that it's not necessarily a high cost effort, but it's just about design teams that are committed and working together with common goals in mind. Um, and it's just a very nice design for people that often are afflicted by health problems because of the, of the ways that, that they're living. Um, so paying attention to indoor environmental quality in this case uh, makes a lot of sense. Um, a little bit more on the residential side. What we try to do is talk about the house as a system. So one focus area is energy, uh, where we look at the envelope 
uh, insulation, siding, moisture control, um, the mechanical systems and the electrical systems where you can do testing of systems to check on duct leakage and things like that. How leaky is your house? Can you add other things to the envelope that help reduce the heating and cooling loads? Uh, we also look at resources such as water and materials. Uh, we have energy efficient, water efficient appliances such as dishwashers, faucets, aerators, toilets. And then looking at the outside of the building, drought resistant, low water use, energy high efficiency irrigation helps to save water. And then materials, uh, durable materials that have uh, perhaps high recycled content um, that are have a, a softer footprint on the environment. And then we look at the indoor of the building, indoor pollution, ventilation, using low VOC paints that have low percentages of volatile organic compounds that off-gas and um, adhesives as well, and uh, a whole menu of things that you can go through to check on what types of things you're putting into your project. This is from the Energy Star uh, website showing a house showing where all the different places where air gets into the house where you don't want it to, and air places for air to leak out of the house where you don't want it to. And this is kind of the next step of energy efficiency, I think, in a lot of the existing homes here is weatherizing, sealing, but providing ample ventilation so you're not um, trapping pollutants in the house where you don't want them. So our department does a lot of education. We uh, sponsor tours to building industry folks to go see green buildings, such as the new federal building, um, the Thoreau Center of Sustainability in the Presidio, the California Academy of Sciences. And this is a way to educate design professionals and builders and people who work for the city that green building um, is just sort of the, is becoming much more the norm and they're not weird looking or they're not necessarily straw bale or these are just some of the most well-designed buildings in the city right now. Um, we also sponsored a home tour, a green, the first ever uh, green home tour in San Francisco um, a couple weeks ago. We had seven projects on the tour from small custom uh, kitchen remodels to high-end new home construction to affordable multifamily projects. And we had over 1,100 participants on the tour. So this is definitely a sign that um, there's a lot of interest from the public on this issue and the amount of education that we have to do is just going to increase over time. Um, we have a Green Building Professionals Guild that we hold uh, monthly at our office at 11 Grove Street where we try to educate builders, contractors, architects, and other design professionals on um, any host of topics that relate to on the residential side from home performance testing to lighting design, green HVAC design and construction, um, stormwater management, and Build It Green is a resource that we use to help us organize these events. Um, builditgreen.org is pretty much your one-stop shop to get uh, resources on residential green building. Um, They've done an incredible job of engaging a lot of the building, residential building industry stakeholders across the Bay Area and the state of California um, to develop a standard and resources and training modules to help move the residential green building sector forward. Um, they have a Ask an Expert hotline that you can call 
or fill out an online questionnaire at their website. If you have any question relating to a green building question, issue, product, equipment that you want to find, they can either answer in person on the phone or send you back an email um, with, a, with an answer. And another resource is the Access Green Directory, which um, is also on their website. And you can basically type in your zip code and using pull-down menus, look for a material or a resource or a piece of equipment that you might be interested in specking for your project. And it will actually tell you the supplier or, or location where you can, you can actually buy that, um, that product. So it's very helpful. It's constantly updated. And we've included San Francisco locations in the last couple of years, so we really want to promote this resource. Uh, Greenpoint's guidelines are checklists and guidelines and a third-party rating system that, again, helps to define uh, on a common playing field what green actually is. Um, so you can look at the guidelines for new home construction, remodeling, and multifamily projects. And these are constantly being updated. I think there's free copies out in the um, SF environment table out in the lobby. That's just sort of showing you uh, a sample of the checklist. And it's got every measure that you could possibly think of. And you don't have to sit there and scratch your head when you're going through your project. What should I be doing? This kind of lays it out for you. And you can do what makes sense for you, what makes sense for your project, what, what makes sense for your budget. And um, it's very a helpful resource. Uh, finally, this is a new uh, residential green building project that got just, just got completed and uh, was Greenpoint rated using the Greenpoint's checklist at the 22nd and, and Valencia. It's three um, new condos with a mixed-use uh, ground floor commercial space, and it has a living roof. It's got a solar system on it. It's very energy efficient. They used a lot of recycled materials, including the Exterior siding was made of reclaimed um, olive oil barrels, wood. And it's just uh, a, a great example of mixing the new, like the best practices in green design with a very modern aesthetic. So um, here is our contact information at the Department of the Environment. Um, again, I'm uh, in charge of the residential sector and uh, we'll be around afterwards to answer questions. Thanks. And now um, I'd like to introduce Dan Geiger from U.S. Green Building Council, Northern California chapter. Thank you very much, uh, Rich and Dave. Um, and thanks, thanks to the department for inviting me here. How's everybody doing this morning? You are, is your, are your stomachs grumbling yet, ready for lunch? I got to get to the beginning of my presentation here. Uh, okay. Um, so, you know, every time I see that uh, slide from The Inconvenient Truth about the climate change, I, my, I think my house is like right on the border of where the water is supposed to come up. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, we have to do something about this. Um, this is such an important issue, such an important topic. And, and I think it's actually very poorly understood by the general public and, and the industry is more and more understanding, but buildings are a huge part of the whole energy situation and the environmental situation. And it's kind of so obvious, it's sort of like the, the palm of our hand. We don't really 
notice it or think about it a lot because it's like we as as rich said we spend ninety percent of our times in our building so we take a lot of things for granted so we're, we are beginning to see amazing momentum on green building all over the place you know there's like a green building conference practically every day of the week so that's a really really positive sign i'm going to kind of go through some things uh... i'm going to skip through some things that rich has already touched on but you know this buildings are, green building is happening everywhere and it involves all different kinds of constituencies uh... you know builders financers insurance companies planners uh... building inspectors electrical contractors home owners homeowners you know commercial owners developers you know everybody almost every manufacturers there's hard to think of an industry or a group that isn't involved in green buildings so usgbc is a membership organization that's comprised of all those different types of people and we're, we've already seen some of this, but the reason why this is so important is that, you know, we can see that buildings are consume 70% of electricity and are responsible for 30% of carbon emissions. Um, the growth I was talking about is sort of reflected in the membership of USGBC. The way USGBC works is companies or organizations join at a national level and individuals join at a chapter level. And we're actually now, in, in the last couple of months, past the 10,000 mark for companies and organizations that are members of USGBC nationwide. And our chapter is growing like exponentially uh, with our individual memberships as well. We probably, I think we have probably 900 or 1,000, and we're getting about 80 a month at this point. So uh, Rich had already referred to LEED. I want to talk a little bit about what LEED is. and. Um, so uh, just kind of FYI, the, kind, the, the scale and the growth that we're seeing in general is reflected in the amount of the dollar volume of lead buildings. For this year, it's projected to be over $200 billion. And this slide was produced a few months ago. I'd wager that that number is probably now approaching 250 because um, it's just, you know, we cannot keep up with the growth. Uh, sorry, hitting the wrong button here. Um, surprise, surprise, look who's in the lead in terms of green building uh, and, and the use of lead. You know, as usual, California is, is leading the nation. I mean, in particular, Northern California, it's uh, actually the U.S. Green Building Council was actually founded in San Francisco, actually in our office. We share office space with the AIA San Francisco, and our founder in 1993 had their first board meeting in our office. And uh, they now have a headquarters in Washington, D.C., but... You know, Northern California is one of the leading areas in the world. I mean, people are coming here from all over the world to study and learn about green building and sustainable technologies uh, from Silicon Valley to, you know, San Francisco and all throughout Northern California. So we should be proud of our role. And California is extremely important in terms of how we do things because what happens here really, you know, determines what goes on all around the country and the world because of the size of our economy. So I'm just going to go a bit on what LEED is. LEED, uh, as we've already seen, basically it looks at six categories of a building, and that includes site planning, uh, water management, energy management is a, is a very significant portion of it, material usage, indoor environmental air quality, and innovation and design. Rich mentioned a lot of the problems associated with uh, indoor air quality. Let me just ask, how many people think what would you say is worse, indoor pollution or outdoor pollution? How many people would say outdoor pollution is worse than indoor pollution? 
a few. How many people would say indoor? Okay, you're a well-educated audience. Indoor pollution is five times worse than outdoor pollution. I mean, think about that, five times worse. You know, one of the things is, one of the worst things is the formaldehyde that's put into carpets, right? And they used to go around and measure formaldehyde, and they would go in with an instrument and walk around like this. And they'd say, no problem, no problem. Well, guess what? Like, formaldehyde's heavier than air. So where is it? Down here. Who's down there? Babies. Babies. Little kids, right? Asthma. Attention deficit disorder. I don't have science to back up that claim, actually, but you got to believe when you're having your children grow up inhaling poison, it's going to affect them, right? So indoor air quality is a, is a really important category, and it's not often um, people don't, you know, the people think about solar panels and all that, which is great, but it's a really important thing. And then we also award points for innovation and design. So having a beautiful, inspiring place to live and work is really part of what it means to be sustainable and what it means to be green. Um, so there are, are various types of lead uh, categories. Um, there's lead, there's a, a lead for residential that's going to become officially released in, in um, November. The, the mostly it's been applied in the commercial building sector for new buildings and existing buildings. Um, and then within that, uh, there's also a, a new one for lead for neighborhood development. So it's really taking the concept, it's not just about your building, but how are you building a community? So it takes into account things like transportation. Can people ride their bikes to work? Um, is, there, is there grass? Are there trees? You know, is there a playground? All those sorts of things. How accessible is it? Um, there's also lead coming out for schools, hospitals, and laboratories because those have unique characteristics and unique um, kind of problems. So the LEED system, you know, uses a, it's a, a certification system and it ranges from certified silver, gold, and platinum. And platinum is the highest level, pretty hard to get. And we've already seen the, the Academy of Sciences shooting for platinum and it would definitely be uh, a, a major uh, accomplishment. It's based on a point system that, takes, that looks at the six categories uh, I just showed you and you add them all up, and that's how you get to the different certification levels. Um, and as I had already mentioned, there's different types of lead for different aspects of buildings and different types of buildings. And um, we're in November at the Greenville Conference, which is the USGBC National Conference, it's going to be in Chicago. There are going to be a lot of announcements about enhancements and updates to lead and new, new leads and all kinds of things. So it's a constantly evolving system and tool. Um, and uh, it's, it's all, all the committees that define LEAD are elected by our members. So it's a voluntary, nonprofit, elected group of people who are in the industry who determine what these standards are and how it works. Um, just to kind of give you an example of the, the way the points are distributed in the different categories, uh, you can see that uh, energy and indoor air quality are very high. This is actually just being revised, and the energy portion is getting a larger share of the points. Um, that's a recent change. And I wanted to show you a couple little uh, case studies just to kind of give you an idea, because people think about, oh, it's going to cost me, like Rich said, it's, people think, what's it going to cost me? Well, I want to show you how you can actually make money by, making, by doing green. And Adobe, uh, a software company, uh, undertook a commitment to green their existing buildings. And they have the first platinum uh, green, green
Green Building in, uh, as their headquarters. And we've, we've already seen some of the benefits. They've studied and analyzed and quantified a lot of their benefits. So you can see here, and I'll put this PowerPoint on our website, and there's a lot of other PowerPoints with a lot of data and case studies that you're welcome to go to. But you can see the kinds of savings that have been realized and the, and the reduction in carbon emissions as a result of their projects. From a financial standpoint, what's really compelling to me about this case study, and there are other larger scale studies that can back this up, they, they invested $1.4 million. They're earning back $1.2 million per year. They have 121% return on investment on their green building projects. And they had a payback in nine and a half months. I challenge you to find any other investment that will return that kind of, and uh, give you that rate of return. As the guy from Adobe and Christian Wakel said, you know, it's a heck of a lot better than my 401k. So from a company point of view, from an owner point of view, you have to take the long-term uh, look at what's the long-term benefit of this, not just is it going to cost me an extra 1% or 2% up front? And the interesting thing is they really broke it out by all the different categories uh, and all the projects and how much it cost and how much they did. Rebates were part of it. They got solar rebates and things like that from the state and various programs. But they calculated the ROI for each different uh, category. And you can see load management, which is really sort of electricity. You know, Rich had a great picture of how that works in a house. Huge, huge, huge. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit there. One story told was they had a, in their parking garage, um, they uh, for their employees, they had a huge fan that ran 24 hours a day. And they just thought, you know, geez, I wonder how much that costs. So they looked at it and figured it out, and they realized it cost them like $100,000 a year to run that fan. And so they said, wow, you know, I wonder if we need to run that fan the whole time. So they did a lot of tests and measurements, and they realized that they could run the fan 10 minutes per hour, three hours in the morning, and three hours at the end of the day, and have perfectly fine air quality. They saved $90,000 a year by writing a $100 program to control the fan. So a lot of this is not necessarily all the latest whiz-bang technology. A lot of it is common sense. And actually, a lot of it is, like as Rich said, going back to kind of an integrated, holistic design approach. How many people here have like been to the Mediterranean in the summertime, and, you know, visiting any of the old ruins and stuff? A few. You know, it's really hot there. I've been there in different places. And you go into like these ancient Greek or Roman or, uh, ruins, and guess what? You know, they're very cool and comfortable when it's like 100 or 110 degrees outside and you have to carry around huge bottles of water. And they're built out of thick stone walls. They're white, you know. The homes are built in the same way. They don't have air conditioning. They didn't use electricity to do it. You know, this is not a new concept. This isn't rocket science. As one of our engineers uh, members said, you know, if gophers can build tunnels that stay 80 degrees when it's over 100 outside, I think humans are smart enough to do a similar thing. So it's a matter of thinking about it, right? So the interesting, another interesting thing is they took on, uh, at Adobe, they did a bunch of projects before going through the lead process. And they got 106% return on investment. And then they decided to go for lead. And what lead did is, as he told the story, it forced them to really look at all aspects of their operation in a way that they hadn't done before. And as a result of that, they identified 34 more projects, which had 148% ROI. So 
people off sometimes people in the industry say you know lead it's going to cost me more because i have to pay for the certification and i have to go through all this rigmarole and file paperwork you know it's true you do is it going to cost you you know have to pay some fees and you're going to hire a lead accredited professional and you're going to have to go through some extra steps but look what happens when you do that is that a cost or is that an is that a benefit right it's a much higher roi as a result of being forced to walk through looking at the entire picture of how your building operates and these are existing buildings we're talking about this is not a new construction so we've already seen some of the benefits rich has mentioned you know um, reduced liability you know fireman's fund offers an insurance program five percent discount if you build a green if you build a lead building um, it has potential to dramatically reduce the effect on our environment uh, to reduce energy consumption, to reduce carbon savings. Last week, Friday, I went to a building opening in San Jose by one of our members. He built a uh, zero energy, zero carbon emissions building. It used to be a Bank of America branch building. He redid the whole thing and had solar, white roofs, a lot of daylighting. Every little thing about the building was thought through about how to conserve or not use energy. The heating system is from the floor, and they had a system that came down and ran you know the pipes underneath the floor to cool it during the day so there's no air blowing it was very comfortable and enjoyable and the the air conditioning system generates heat as it works so that energy that heat was pumped out underground to the garden outside and stored in the earth overnight because the earth retains heat in the morning when you need to turn on the heat it called back that heat to come back to warm the floor they lose about 50% of the energy along the way, but it was like the most pleasant, you know, environment that I'd been in in a really, really long time. And they use zero energy to run the building. It's, and it's, this is not like rocket science technology. The, I talked to the people who did all the instrumentation. They've been, you know, this is, they've been doing this for a while. This was in San Jose. It's called Ideas. Ideas. Uh, David Canada uh, is the guy whose company is and I think got a lot of press coverage last weekend at least on local TV and San Jose Mercury News um, so I think we've already seen you know some of the some of the benefits um, just to kind of wrap up it's really important that if you're interested in getting into this that you think about it from the beginning of whatever process you're doing and you have to take a very holistic approach it's a this is about integrated design it's not about, you know, the, one of the problems with the industry is that you have, the industry is very siloed. You have the people with the money, you have the developers, you have the contractors, you have the subcontractors, you have, you know, mechanical and electrical and plumbers, and they all kind of do their thing. And what really has to happen to make this work, it's, it actually, it's, it's transformative in terms of how we live and work as a community, as an industry, because people have to work together. And they have to communicate, and they have to think together in a holistic way. So that's extremely important, and you need people who know what they're doing to do this. So LEAD AP, that's why Rich's slide had all those initials after their name. LEAD AP means LEAD Accredited Professional. That's someone who's been through a course of study and had taken an exam to verify that they know what LEAD is and how green building works. Um, <clears throat> just, you, there's 
legislation and, and regulations, you know, coming out almost on a daily basis and on local, county, and state levels. A lot of activity in California all over the place, a lot of activity in municipalities all around the country, not a lot of activity at the federal level. I won't go there, but we think we know this is sort of a bottom-up kind of a movement, which is great, and we're, we're in the lead. So just brief a little bit about us. Our, we're the Northern California chapter of the U.S. Green Building Council. There are 70 chapters around the country, and the blue area, the green area, is our kind of quote-unquote territory. So it's a rather large area. We have a branch in Sacramento. We have a branch in Monterey Bay. I'm hoping we have a branch in San Jose or Silicon Valley sometime soon. I spoke in Stockton recently. There's people wanting to start a branch there, and we're, we're growing like crazy. So we have branches uh, throughout the state of California. So that's uh, kind of an overview of USGBC and some highlights on green building. You can find a lot of information and a lot of presentations and case studies on our website. And oh, last but not least, I neglected to put in uh, the slide, but we're having a totally cool event on October 25th, uh, Green Building Superheroes. There's invitations on the table, and we're going to give awards to um, David Gottfried, who's the founder of USGBC, and Mrs. Huang, who built the Orchid Hotel, which is a LEED-certified hotel downtown. Also, uh, Van Jones and the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, who does green jobs, and Fireman's Fund Insurance Company. Uh, Paul Hawken will be our, uh, our featured speaker, so definitely we hope you can join us, pick up an invitation, and be happy to answer questions. Thank you. Well, we're running a little short on time, so I'll, I'll make my little uh, solar permit presentation uh, uh, expedited permit process very close, and then we'll take questions. And um, basically, there will be a uh, – there's a few things you want to know about uh, solar systems. Uh, this expedited permit process is not for uh, the large solar systems, such as the Academy of Science, 160 kilowatts. It's just – I was just out there. It's absolutely amazing. The perimeter of the building is, uh, is a flat uh, half-inch thick uh, roof glass, and the glass is laminated in the solar – Panels are manufactured, I don't know where, and it generates 160 kW. There's, I think, uh, eight, eight, eight or 16 inverters that back, back feed through the system. And, uh, but if you have a smaller system, uh, you're a residence or a small commercial business, uh, we have an expedited permit process. This is Lisa, you, you our clerk, will assist you. And that's for this type of a system. I believe this is a row house that's facing south, and you can see solar panels uh, facing both, both east and west. And uh, the conditions that allow you to get this expedited uh, permit process, basically uh, uh, the, the safety is the roof. You, can, you can't have too much weight on the roof, so you're allowed to have one tar and gravel roof or two shingle roofs, and then you can put your solar system on the roof. The solar system is considered equivalent to a second layer of roof. And, of course, you and your contractor have to ensure that your roof structure is safe and a good repair to uh, support that uh, structure. Uh, some of the old buildings in San Francisco are substandard, and you'll need to do your due diligence and ensure that your roof is adequate. The other key factor is fastening. If you don't fasten the roof, the wind will blow it off. So uh, we, uh, we have really expedited our approval process for fastening, and we're continuing to improve it. And we do over the free over-the-counter review of any structural fastening system you uh, the installer wants to do. 
Of course, there's, uh, there's panels have to be on the roof, and I do an over-the-counter review of uh, larger systems to ensure that the uh, electrical side of it is correct. So the fire department has requirements, and their basic requirement is they want to be able to get up on the roof to fight a fire if necessary. So they want three feet at the front so they can approach the roof, and, on a, and they want a, a three-foot path to the back of the roof. Or on a pitched roof, such as this picture is, they want 18 inches so they can crawl along the roof with their equipment. They might have to ventilate the roof, meaning they might have to put a big hole in your roof. And, they'll, and fortunately, solar systems are usually on one side so they can put a hole in. Um, batteries, uh, you would have to get a building permit for batteries. The batteries are potentially hazards, a lot of stored energy. Fire department wants a permit for that. However, uh, the typical interactive system does not use batteries. Batteries really aren't required. You would only need them if you wanted to uh, have power in the event of a power failure. So uh, I would say 99.99% of the systems in San Francisco do not have batteries. They're what's called interactive in which they feed all the excess energy back into the PG&E grid. And the last point I wanted to make is uh, solar systems can be dangerous. The typical voltage generated is between 300 and 600 volts DC. If you get on the wires, they will electrocute you. Fortunately, um, the systems are very well designed and protected. And that concludes uh, my presentation. I wanted to remind you that we do have evaluation forms and question forms at the back. And uh, we'd really appreciate you filling them out or uh, coming up to me after the meeting if you have any questions or suggestions. And with that, I'd like to open it up to questions to any one of the three of us. We don't have the, the uh, PowerPoint presentations uh, available on handout, but uh, the DBI presentations will be available online within a week. And um, a lot of this information are on these websites. The Department of Environment, um, San Francisco Department of Environment has a wonderful website with tremendous resources. And build. I uh, actually. And then the, um, of course, the Green Building Council and BuildItGreen.com is a tremendous resource. Is that what it is? Dot org. And. Uh, it's amazing uh, with a little Google searching how much uh, information is. Now, I also have, uh, I've collected, I have some files, and if anybody uh, wants me, I'd be glad to email uh, information that I've collected to anybody that uh, gives, me, gives me their card with their email. I, I do that. So. Any, any other questions? You can go to the, uh, please uh, feel free to go to the mic. I'm curious about how you would apply um, the LEED green building to neighborhood development. What is that about? Um, the neighborhood development is, is something that's in pilot phase. It's coming out shortly. Um, but basically it looks at the entire, like, if, if you're doing, um, you know, a, a developer might be building a bunch, a group of houses, let's say. So it looks at all aspects of how that project is underway. So are there places to shop nearby? How is it being located? How is it impacting the local environment? Um, uh, what kinds of considerations are being made for um, children, open space? Uh, 
transportation and commuting. It's sort of a whole series of things that are looked at in terms of taking the concept of not just a building, but to the community as a whole, you know, to the neighborhood. And really, you know, the, I think the ultimate goal is to take it to how do we build living cities and living communities. So it's an expansion of those. Right. It's an expansion of the concept to not to take it beyond a single building to yep. how you really design a community. I'll just add to that. Um, there are three San Francisco projects in the pilot program for lead for neighborhood developments right now. One is the 55 Laguna project at Market um, and Laguna, uh, the old UC extension, uh, the rebuilding of Hunter's View um, out in Bayview, and then uh, the Schlage Lock site in Visitation Valley are all in the pilot program. Use the mic, please. I have a question regarding the fluorescent light situation that you brought up earlier. Uh, first of all, I find it very intrusive when you're coming into someone's home and dictating their, their sense of aesthetics. I physically cannot tolerate fluorescent light. It's practically a disability, so I'm not quite sure how I personally will function under those circumstances. But my real question to you, taking away the, the residential issue, is in commercial, there is so much light. Now, I will accept the fact that a fluorescent tube may be less expensive than an incandescent lamp, but the fact is you have six, seven, or eight of them. I built out space recently where I had a 9 by 12 office, and the requirement was to have six fluorescent tubes in the 9 by 12 office. So my question to you is, uh, and you suggested, I think, as well, that, that you know, technology was moving forward. They were going to become more, more uh, tolerable in terms of color, in terms of, uh, I think you measure them in, in uh, heat energy and things like that. Is, is that actually happening, or are we just being forced to take one particular kind of uh, instrument and, and incorporate it into our whole lives? Well, you raised a, a number of questions, and I'll, I'll, I'll start out. Uh, as far as commercial, um, Lighting efficiency is required. Uh, the state energy code uh, does uh, set requirements, and it has a required computer program that energy efficiency professionals uh, design to ensure um, compliance, and it's really based on watts per square foot, and there, there are different methods to achieve that. And uh, for, I think, for example, maybe it would be eight-tenths of a watt per square foot or 1.2 watts per square foot. But um, so there's a lot of um, different design approaches that can work in a commercial establishment. And I'm, a typical office does not require as many, uh, as much fluorescent as, as you say, uh, were, was installed in your, your installation. You should take a look at uh, some of your alternatives for fluorescent light. Electronic ballasts do not hum, and the fluorescent lights are available in a the full range of spectrum now of, uh, of light color, and the industry is continuing to advance. And in addition, we have the potential for LED lights uh, on the horizon. At this time, uh, LED light uh, industries are putting a lot of money into LED light development. And although you can't guarantee at this time that they're energy efficient. Uh, they are rapidly becoming energy efficient, and I believe in the future it will be an alternative to fluorescent light. Uh, 
any other points? Just a quick addition. Um, use natural lighting whenever possible. This building I mentioned hardly used lights at all because they had natural daylighting. Secondly, uh, the other low-hanging fruit is uh, uh, sensors, lighting sensors, so that you don't leave lights on when somebody isn't in the room. Even if you're using regular lighting, that can reduce uh, your energy consumption considerably. And LED is, I think, the next uh, technology that's a better um, and more efficient light. Well, I'm, well I'm, I, I'm not personally an expert on it, but I've heard that uh, at this time, uh, the state code, the existing state plumbing code, does not have provisions for gray water, but there is a lot of uh, movement in that direction, and I believe the State Building Standards Commission is uh, seriously considering uh, changes as our local jurisdiction, so it's coming but it, it's not exactly here yet, and perhaps you can add to that. Well, um, the Department of Building Inspection does have a code advisory committee, and um, that group of committees looks at different areas within the building code, um, and including there is a green building subcommittee that meets monthly to try to identify areas in the code that might could, could get modified to allow for some of these more sustainable technologies. We, we did start to look at gray water um, about a year ago um, at the request of somebody in the group, but we were hard-pressed to find um, another example of a city like San Francisco, specifically in regards to the topography that exists here and how dense the city is in terms of how close all the properties are to each other. And if there's been a precedent that had the same characteristics as San Francisco, that would be one thing. But because the properties are so close and there's, there's a lot of hills here, there's a concern about trespass of that gray water for irrigation across properties when people might not really want that on their property. Um, and because houses change hands so much here, operating the gray water system when, when owners are changing hands, um, there's a whole education piece that needs to be addressed. So there are a lot of issues in that, but the interest is growing. So I think perhaps at the state level, there may be some movement there. Because it's not in the code, uh, you, you would have to have, you would have to have an engineered system and you would have to uh, convince the, de the department and the plumbing inspection department uh, that you had a safe system. So it, I won't say it's impossible, but it's, it's difficult. And I, I, I think that when it, uh, methods get into the state code, it'll be a lot easier. At least you'll have parameters. Yeah, again, um, because water resources are becoming um, more critical issue across the state of California. These requests have been coming in, and again, as Dave said, if it's not technically allowed in the code per se, 
Um, there are alternative means and methods with provisions within the code that if you get have an engineered system that's designed and, and stamped by uh, a licensed engineer and you need to go to the, um, the authority within the department if it's a plumbing issue or an electrical issue or what have you and just sort of make a case-by-case -case, um, request. But there's currently nothing that, um, that is across the board that would allow that right now. So you can't just go out and do it willy-nilly, but if you, if you really think it's a priority for your project, you can sort of start that conversation with the building department on a case-by-case -case basis. concerning the lead um, and you said there is a section there for existing buildings now short of um, short of changing your boilers and changing your windows and changing your building envelope what can you do to create a building that's say 80 90 years old and have it be lead certified well um, I'll jump in and, and I'm sure Dan has something to add to this but lead EB is exactly, Lead for Existing Buildings is, is targeting that exact sort of um, project that you're describing. Um, boilers, systems, heating, lighting, upgrades. Um, if you can't do too much on the envelope um, or looking for opportunities in the envelope, if it's not necessarily gutting the entire building, but looking at the operational systems of the building, making upgrades, and looking at ongoing operations. So what is your cleaning program for your building? Are you using, uh, you know, nasty chemical-based cleaners or are there opportunities to use cleaning agents and other protocols that are a little bit more healthy for the environment um, in, inside the building and outside the building? We did an analysis for the um, One South Van S building uh, that the city is in the process of purchasing now and use the lead for existing buildings checklist to recommend changes that could be made to the building to improve the operational performance and the sort of environmental qualities of the building. And there were toilets in there that had not been changed in a long time and the payback to change all the, all the existing toilets in that building was eight months. Um, so huge water saving opportunities are out there energy saving opportunities and looking at um, more policy related things to how you maintain and upkeep the building. And um, for example, um, sort of going back to the bathroom question, but many, many uh, facilities managers want to change the toilet paper, um, even if there's still toilet paper on the roll. But if you don't, if you decide not to do that, you're saving money right there or cleaning cleaning the building while uh, the building is in operation as opposed to waiting till all the occupants are out, are out. There are way to, ways to do that so you're not running the building necessarily after hours when you don't need to just to clean the building. So those are some, and the lead for existing buildings reference guide has, is just full of uh, case studies and, and, and technologies and um, methods of, of where to look for opportunities to save money. I'll just briefly add um, that, that the name for that is actually in the process of being changed. It's going to be called Lead for Operational Efficiency. And one person used the phrase, you know, it's not about remodeling your, your building. It's that lead is for life. 
and it's a way of doing things around everything that you do. And, you know, Rich mentioned many, many things, and like, for instance, I recently met with a electrical contractor company that has technology, infrared technology that'll examine a building's electricity infrastructure, electrical infrastructure, and identify where electricity is leaking. And they can reduce electrical consumption by like 30% by identifying places where energy is leaking. Uh, glazing is a real low-hanging fruit in terms of energy, energy conservation for air conditioning and heating. I mean, you could go on and on and on and on, but those are a couple of examples. Just one other thing that I would throw out there is uh, this term called commissioning. And if you do building commissioning, which is required by LEED, um, if there's an existing building, there's a process called uh, retro commissioning where you basically play building doctor and go into all the systems, heating, cooling, plumbing, with a third-party expert that will, like, basically examine every little piece of the, of the functional parts of the building systems and recommend improvements, and then you can sort of start doing, a, you know, sort of a budget based on how much is it going to cost to make these improvements and how much is this going to save me over time. And um, there are tons of studies out there that show that it's a very, very cost-effective uh, thing to do. And, and I'd, I'd like to add to that, even at the homeowner, the small property owner, or even occupant, PG&E Energy Center has a tool lending program where you can uh, rent uh, their energy consumption meters, uh, temperature meters, and motor on-off meters. If you're, if you're concerned about uh, uh, saving energy, you can actually borrow their tools. Uh, they uh, save it in electronic format, and you can download it and... Uh, actually collect information on the energy use in your building that way. Uh, excuse me, uh, Rich, you mentioned a lead checklist. Can we find that on the buildagreen.org site? Well, there, there's uh, a two checklists that are out there. One is the lead program that is administered by the U.S. Green Building Council. It's been primarily for commercial and, and institutional buildings, but as Dan said, they're Going into the residential market with lead for homes and looking at uh, larger scale developments with lead for neighborhood developments. Build It Green is a local resource that administers a program called Greenpoint Rated. And at Build It Green, you can, or you can download residential new home construction re and remodeling guidelines, which have checklists within them, which will tell you all the things that you might consider if you're doing a project. Residential and what about commercial? Is the lead program, and if you go to usgbc.org, okay, you can get, we'll get those. Thank yep. You. Just also there on our local website, usgbc-ncc.org, there's a lot of studies and case studies. That we Last night we had a presentation on a, a pretty well-known study in the industry by Davis Langdon on the cost of green revisited. And they did a pretty thorough analysis of the financial aspects and benefits of green building. And there's a, a copy of that presentation on our website in the pre under green building. And then there's a presentations column on the right with a bunch of PowerPoints you can download. Well, if, uh, unless there are other questions, uh, we'll call it a day. And uh, don't forget to fill out any uh, uh, questionnaires you'd like at the back. And uh, I'll be available for any uh, other questions. Thank you very much.